Hey, it's Phil Simon. My new book is out now. It is called The Nine, The Tectonic Forces Reshaping the Workplace. It's my best work to date, and I hope that you'll check it out. Thanks. Man killing snakes of the Amazon. Sir, never say Amazon in a bookstore. Amazon, of course. Conversations about collaboration. Episode 20. Bill Carr joins me. He is the co-author of a new book, Working Backwards, Insights, Stories, and Secrets from Inside Amazon. He joins me to talk about collaboration at the world's largest e-commerce company, not to mention AWS. We also discuss the peculiar nature of collaboration at the company. In other words, Amazon is incredibly collaborative in one aspect and incredibly not collaborative in another. Let's rock and roll. Bill, where does this podcast find you? Uh, it finds me in um, Sun Valley, Idaho. Well, I'm really enjoying the book so far. I'm only about 60 or 70 pages in. But one thing that's painfully evident to me is that Amazon just does a whole bunch of things differently than other companies. But for the purposes of this pod, talk a little bit about the ethos of collaboration at Amazon in comparison to, I don't want to say everywhere else, but just about everywhere else. Well, let's see. Um there, there are sort of um, uh, <clears throat> two different ways that Amazon thinks about collaboration. One is um, uh, actually anti-collaboration, and another is high collaboration. And so let me try to um, share more about that. So in the early 2000s, when Amazon was starting to grow like a weed, and the business started to diversify as we went beyond our original core business of books, music, and video to many other product categories, a marketplace business, partnerships with third parties, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it became increasingly um, complex, complicated to uh, uh, make sure that all the different initiatives that every team had in mind would actually you know, get, get funded, get out the door, get staffed by teams. And so we did what most companies do as they get larger, which is they, they seek to find ways to communicate and collaborate um, more effectively across different teams and departments. And we took, uh, we instituted actually a, 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 an initiative planning project that we had um, borrowed from GE uh, because our CFO at the time had come from that company. And um, we tried that approach for about a year, uh, but we actually, uh, after about a year, we rejected that approach and decided that we were spending way too much time uh, coordinating and collaborating among teams and not enough time actually building new products on behalf of our customers. And so we sought to do from an organizational point of view is, in fact, um, minimize coordination and collaboration among various teams. And so to kind of organize into small, uh, autonomous, um, single-threaded teams. They were originally called two pizza teams because they could you know, you could feed the whole team of two pizzas if you had to. Um, but then later they were really uh, renamed, you know, um, single threaded uh, teams with a single threaded leader that are separable. And um, this is also, you know, is also kind of particular to being a technology company where um, <clears throat> at this time people were really moving to a service-based architecture as a mode of, of uh, running, um, running the, the tech platform for a company and how to build software in a more effective way. And so if you think about that model where each, each um, 
each kind of functional area is is owned by a separate you know software team and that then interactions between different services in a software stack happen through application protocol interfaces um, it's it really is designed to enable teams to be autonomous and and run fast towards the goal but to interface and collaborate via some hardened apis which uh, minimize the amount of sort of uncertainty in how you would you would operate it. So um, that's actually kind of the model for how the company thought about um, coordination and collaboration across departments. On the other hand, I could point to a different example of sort of the management science of Amazon to say that the company, in fact, had uh, came up with a different approach that is highly collaborative. And one such approach is how the company conducts meetings. So... Um, we rejected the idea, or I should say we experimented in the early 2000s with what if we stop using PowerPoint as the mode or mechanism for um, uh, internal meetings. And by internal meetings, I don't mean large uh, presentations to several hundred people, like an all hands meeting. I mean, the typical meeting, which is, you know, 10 to 30 people. And in particular, this experimentation occurred with Jeff and his senior leadership team, the S team where they meet weekly and for about four or five hours, which is a very expensive meeting. And um, the like most companies, the Amazon was conducting those meetings by using PowerPoint. So some presenter would come in with a deck and would talk through that deck. But um, we found it very frustrating uh, because if you've ever sat through a lot of meetings based on PowerPoint, you know, the speaker will get interrupted frequently. Um, they, you end up spending 40 minutes to actually get all the thoughts out and all the data out onto the table and then leave yourself maybe a small amount of time for actually meaningful discussion at the end. So we decided to uh, shift and, and experiment with something else, which was to, instead of using PowerPoint, every team had to come in with a written document. And um, to make a long story short, we found that that was a much more effective way to conduct meetings and, and make decisions because Fundamentally, teams that had to write a document had to work a lot harder and think through and understand their business and communicate it much more clearly um, if you write a good document than using PowerPoint. You, you can skip over and gloss over a lot of details of PowerPoint, but with a document, you can't get away with that. And you're really forced as the author to really connect the dots for, um, for uh, the reader of the document. And at the same time, if you're in the meeting and you're the receptor, the, 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 you know, the manager or leader or, or the reader of the document, you're able to take in um, seven to eight times more information than you can in a PowerPoint in the same amount of time. And so uh, the way a, a meeting at Amazon works is that people pass out a document, they read it for 20 minutes, and then they have a discussion. And I would argue that this is actually a very high form of effective collaboration at many levels. For, for one reason, as I already mentioned, it, it, it's a way to disseminate um, much more detailed information much faster. Second is it democratizes the whole collaboration process. So if you're in a meeting with 50 people and the mode of discussion is, especially in today's world where the documents are shared and sort of, you know, using Google Docs or Microsoft Word where you can do the online collaboration and in real time make your comments. Well, the comment of some entry-level um, product manager will be just as visible and uh, get as much attention as that of a CEO. And furthermore, it actually makes for more effective collaboration because you're not subject to the confirmation bias of where if the CEO is involved in in you know asking every question during a PowerPoint presentation, 
um, then people are likely to um, sort of follow that person's train of train of thought. Whereas each person can have their own independent thinking when they're reading through a document. And then those points of views can be all shared through both the collaboration tool and a discussion. So perhaps a longer answer to the question you were looking for, but two different examples of the way that Amazon sought to both uh, decrease collaboration, but on the other hand, another process that sought to increase collaboration. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. And reading the book, it was obvious to me that there was a great deal of consistency or integration between software development and leadership, right? How many companies say, oh, we need to get on board with agile methods like Scrum, or we need to adopt a DevOps organization, which as you know, is based on velocity, which uh, like how you point out is not the same as speed. On the other hand, they still have that antiquated management structure that's based on a waterfall method or bureaucracy. But it sounds like you guys recognized pretty early on that those two needed to work in concert. Yeah, so one one thing that was also uh, Amazon, um, people didn't understand this for a long time, and I think it wasn't until AWS came into pros- prominence, but Amazon is a tech company. Um, and if, you, if you've worked in, uh, in my career, I worked in, you know, non-tech traditional companies, everything. Uh, I started my career, um, you know, in sales and a Fortune 500 company, Pitney Bowes, and later I worked for Procter & Gamble. And the mentality you have in sort of a traditional, you know, business-based company versus a tech, a true company that really is oriented around tech is very, very different. Um, and the main reason for that is that in a tech company, um, your engine for growth um, all goes through the software development engineering organization. You can't, uh, all of your ability to develop products and services for people is all predicated on your ability to effectively develop um, good software uh, or good hardware technology as the case may be. And so if you want to run a tech company effectively, you have to think tech first and think about um, in the same way that if you're in the, if you're in the Navy and if you think about sort of what is the, the most effective part of of the Navy, that is the the pilots, the airplanes that fly off aircraft carriers are really your, uh, are the force that is most effective in the Navy. And so you start by thinking about, well, how can I make those pilots and fly the most number of effective missions possible? And then everything is designed to support it from there. And the same is true in a good tech company where you think about how can I make my software development engineers incredibly effective and working on the right projects code effectively uh, have uh, right uh, right code that has few errors in it is highly reliable then everything sort of moves back from there and that's a very different mentality than, than uh, a lot of companies have mm-hmm. well it's interesting that you mentioned that because right on the front of my website and I'm a big fan of quotes but I think this one is my own so I'm going to take credit for it is Every company's a tech company. Some just haven't realized it yet. And yeah. Yeah, going back <laughs> to my, my 2011 book, The Age of the Platform, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google, you know, those companies are still there. Throw in Microsoft, Netflix, and you've got you know, a decent percent of total GDP. But I, I found it interesting, particularly as it relates to collaboration, that even though you've got such a core tech element at Amazon, it's not technology ruling things. In other words, when you talk about hiring early on in the book, you mentioned the need to fight personal bias and urgency bias, which are things that no disrespect to any techie, those folks often don't uh, understand or or realize or confirmation bias, right? And I'd argue that a lot of problems we have in the world today stem from the fact that you've got techies writing code and releasing MVPs without actually thinking about those things or asking if they really should or what are the unintended consequences. 
Am I am I wrong on that? Um, you're 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 not wrong. Uh, I think the the way that you know Amazon thinks about it is the orientation. So it's a tech company, but the orientation is a tech company in terms of the orientation of how to be effective, but in terms of the orientation of how to think about how to um, make the business go, it's a customer centric company. So um, what Amazon uh, orients everyone around is how do you make sure that whatever you're do you're doing that um, you are creating value for customers, you're solving important problems for customers, you're ensuring that your service is highly reliable for customers, that um, you are seeking out the various defects in your service in terms of how it's impacting customers in a negative way, and also seeking to understand their needs so that you can truly invent on their behalf. So if I had to pick the, the you know, uh, the orientation, and again, this is one of the big distinctions is that to be, you know, truly customer obsessed, um, is hard to do. And, and what Amazon figured out is how to create a lot of mechanisms and processes to actually reinforce that. So it didn't matter. Um, so I guess the, the point is that whether you were a business person or a tech person, you had to think about the customer first and whether, and, and if you were a business person, you had to understand the technology. And if you're a technology person, you had to understand the business. So the idea was that uh, while people would have certain specific functional expertise, effective leaders of the company did not let those boundaries or their function, the, def- the functional definition of their role shouldn't have been, should not be an impediment to them being both customer focused and, and understanding the broad picture. Um, uh, because you can't, you can't really deliver a great um, customer experience in a great company if you really only understand one discipline, if you only understand tech or you only understand marketing or, or only understand finance, you need to be able to be a, um, as Steve Jobs often said, it's liberal arts meeting technology. And so being able to combine these two uh, uh, things in, in, in the way you think and act. Mm-hmm. Well, the emphasis on the customer or obsession, your word, um, is evident because my understanding is that they hold a seat empty at the senior meetings. They never forget the customers in the room. I used to tell my students that at Amazon, but I'd ask it, right? What's the empty seat for? They go, I don't know. Someone doesn't show up. No, the customer makes them think, you know, even though that customer is not in the room, never forget, which to your point, can't argue with the results. I'm silly enough to, I won't even tell you the price at which I sold my Amazon stock years ago, but different discussion. But to your point, by focusing on the customer, then some of those traditional organizational boundaries maybe erode. Yes, um, that's true. Uh, it is true that in many meetings, we'd leave a chair open. And then I'd say in the years that followed, what we focused on is actually how to create processes to reinforce and thinking about the customer. It's hard to do. And the reason you keep the chair open is uh, a simple example of this is that I spent a lot of my time uh, managing the, or I spent actually my career at Amazon managing the media business. First, the physical media business books, CDs, DVDs, and then the digital media business. And so, of course, I had important business partners, the motion picture studios, uh, the recording companies. Uh, Later on, everyone who made uh, a device that had an application on it where people would watch a video, whether it would be an Xbox or an iPad. So, I had to spend a lot of time working with important third-party partners and um, being focused on their needs is not very hard because you will take a meeting with them. They'll call you up 
you'll have dinner with them. Um, it takes a lot more effort to actually be focused on your end customers if you're in a consumer facing business because you never meet with them. Uh, uh, you you have to create real mechanisms to enable your uh, to be customer obsessed. And oh, by the way, it tends not to be very good for your ego to spend a lot of your time looking at the different emails and experiences from customers where they've had a disappointing experience. Um, and so a lot of human nature to sort of want to avoid that, especially a more senior executive where it's bruising to their ego to think about all the ways in which their service stinks. Um, but to be truly customer obsessed, that's actually what you need to do is to actually live in the same sort of perpetual state of dissatisfaction that your customers exist in, which is they're never completely satisfied. Even if you've, if you figured out how to give them a, you know, a broad selection of products that you can deliver in five days, well, then they'll want to figure out how you can deliver them in two days. And once you start delivering them in two days, they'll want them in one day, and then they'll start to want them in one hour. And then they'll want to want have them in 15 minutes. So the, the benefit of focusing on customers is that it keeps you as a company on your toes and you're constant in a constant, uh, it puts you in that growth mindset and continuous improvement. Um, whereas if you focus on say your competitors, like a lot of companies do, if you catch and beat your competitors and you become number one, well, then what are you chasing anymore? What's, 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 what's driving you to actually continue to improve your, your products and services. And that's, that's the beauty of being customer centric. Even if you become number one, you're still driven to improve. Mm-hmm. Was it a challenge collaborating with some of those third parties because they didn't necessarily yes. have the same ethos as Amazon and they might've been incredibly protecting. difficult. Yeah. Incredibly difficult. Um, uh, because what I came to appreciate is that one of my most important jobs as being the, the really the owner of those relationships was that I had to tell these people no a lot and push back on them a lot and push them hard to do things that they didn't want to do. And that wasn't very easy or enjoyable either. Um, here's a simple example. Uh, for those of you old enough to remember, in the, in the you know, early 2000s, when people started using digital music and you had an iPod and used iTunes, um, uh, when you bought those songs and downloaded them to your to your Mac and then sideload them onto your to your iPod, if for whatever reason your iPod ever crashed or your Mac ever crashed or PC, which by the way would happen, and then if you'd called up Apple and said, "Hey, uh, I lost all the 500 songs I bought from you. Can I can I get those? I need to re-download those." They'd say, "Sorry, uh, you can't do that. You're going to have to buy them again because we don't have the rights." Based, they would not tell you this, but the reason why was based on the rights that they had, they had, um, they had uh, received from the record companies, they did not have a re-download right um, because the record company saw that as a second purchase and they wanted to get paid again. Now, we can all agree that from a customer point of view, that's a completely absurd concept. And so one of the things that I fought very hard on with, with record companies as well as motion picture studios is that once a customer buys it, they need to be able to, we're going to store a copy of it in the cloud for them and they can always re-download it. And that was a multi-year, multi-meeting, frustrating meeting, dealing with lots of unpleasant lawyers and business people to actually achieve such a thing. Uh, it's a little thing, but it's one example that you wouldn't do unless you're customer obsessed. Oh, I, I couldn't agree more. And if you think about the vitriol that customers had, because I'm old enough to remember, right, when Napster came out and yeah, all right, fine, ultimately it wasn't legal, but we were so much pent up rage about spending $16.99 on a compact disc because you wanted one song. 
And when you think about what Apple did with iTunes, the iPod, making it easy to get what you wanted. And yeah, I'm of the opinion, you know what? I, I know professional musicians. I've met a bunch of them. You know, yeah, some of them are worth a ton of money. Others aren't. And plus, it's just stealing. So to your point about focusing on the customer, yeah, they might have been able to make short-term or maximize short-term profits, but long-term, they were basically uh, leading to their own demise, right? That's right. And, and you know, they they were insensitive to like, they didn't have customers, you know, they weren't, they didn't, you know, get the money directly from customers. They didn't have to provide customer support. They couldn't deal with them yelling. You know, they never had to like, listen to them yell at them on the phone. About, you, what are you kidding me? Like the $500 worth of music I bought from you is all gone and I need to buy it again. And so being, you know, um, uh, being customer obsessed and being the representative of the customer means taking up, taking up their, their needs and taking it to, those companies and, and fighting for them. Hmm. It's interesting how the obsession with the customers having all these ancillary effects of actually promoting intelligent collaboration or not trying to cram a, a square peg into a round hole. Yeah. So um, it, it, um, it forces a, a, a different, a different mindset, a different way of, of thinking, because, you know, in many cases, again, I would have people come into the company and they're they're used to having an orientation of, yeah, my job is to make my business partners happy. And I'm like, no, that's actually not your job. It'd be nice to, you know, of course we can all agree there would be uh, more life would be more enjoyable if we're all happy and we like each other. But no, your job is to is to is to be the advocate for the customer. Mm -hmm. Good stuff. I could talk to you all day, but I'll get you out of here on this. Uh, what book are you currently reading? I just started the book Capitalism in America by Paul Greenspan. I think it actually published a couple of years ago. Um, but it's uh, I'm only I'm only a few pages into it, but it is fascinating to hear him explain. It's really helping to explain how it is that um, America, uh, you know, through a combination of 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 uh, luck. Uh, timing and some intentional events became, you know, the largest economy in the world, and helps us understand what we need, what what would need to happen for that to to, to continue to be the case. Because we're obviously at serious risk to not being the largest economy in the world. And if we want that to be, if we want, um, a, if we want the largest economy in the world to be re rest in a country that has a democratic and. Um, uh, uh, a democratic form of government and freedom of speech and, and the best human rights practices. Um, it's very important actually that, that we continue to actually have the world's largest economy, not let that slip to China. Hmm. Good stuff, Bill. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you, Phil. Really enjoyed it as well. Remember that these episodes drop every Tuesday. However, if you'd like early access to them, you're in luck. I've launched a Patreon page for this podcast at, wait for it, patreon.com forward slash Phil Simon. I've set up a number of different tiers, including early access and podcast sponsorships. Thanks for listening to Conversations About Collaboration. If you like what you heard, then how can you not? Please download, like, and or subscribe. See you next time. Remember that these episodes drop every Tuesday. However, 
If you'd like early access to them, you're in luck. I've launched a Patreon page for this podcast at, wait for it, patreon.com forward slash Phil Simon. I've set up a number of different tiers, including early access and podcast sponsorships. Thanks for listening to Conversations About Collaboration. If you like what you heard, then how can you not? Please download, like, and or subscribe. See you next time.